Section 5 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. Condition of the Teutonic Settlements in the Roman Empire. Part 1. The new settlers brought with them certain outlines of organization. They came for the most part not merely as armies but as tribes, and the tribal character became prominent in proportion as they settled. They came for the most part under kings, sometimes apparently of an ancient line, like the Amals among the Goths, sometimes chosen to conduct a war or to reward a conquest. The tribe consisted of free men with their dependents and in time their slaves, though the course of events gradually caused changes in the power, the wealth, and the rank of individuals, and freedom of person and of vote was long at the basis of Teutonic usages, though tempered by limiting customs and by accidental differences of strength and influence. They divided the land as they settled, either adopting the old divisions like the Pagus, Pei, or the Kiwitas, with other indeterminate divisions in Gaul, or creating new ones of their own, in the more purely Teutonic districts, the Gau and the Mark in Germany. And as soon as they were settled, a hierarchy of chiefs grew up, duques, leaders of the host, Hiotzog, over the larger provinces, comites, graf, over the subordinate ones, leaders in war, magistrates in peace. The king had his special companions and faithful men, out of whom, as well as out of the local chiefs, who were not dependent on the king, a nobility arose. The gathering once or twice a year of the free men, in the divisions of the kingdom, and in the kingdom as a whole, brought them continually together, either to make war or to sanction laws and decisions, and the land was partly public, held in common by the inhabitants of the district, whether great or small, partly held in special occupation and tenancy from the community, but not as property by individual members, and partly held by full right of property, subject or not to claims on it, public or private. In each Teutonic settlement there were the old inhabitants and the newcomers, under varying conditions, often in the proportion of two-thirds to one-third of land or produce, the original population shared the soil with the conquering minority and for the most part, conquerors and conquered lived each under their own law. But the Teutonic nations which in the fifth century had not merely invaded the empire, but had made permanent settlements in it, found themselves under new conditions of life. They had exchanged their forests and wastes for a land of ancient cities and established cultivation, in which they were still, indeed above all things, warriors, whose trade and pride was fighting, yet no longer mere foes and destroyers, but settlers, or, as it was said, guests. The Germans, with all their barbarian rudeness and wildness, were not, like the Huns and the Turks afterwards, hopelessly alien in mind and spirit from the Romans whom they had conquered. They had also become more or less familiar with the more civilized races for whom, in the trial of strength, they had been too strong. Some of the German tribes, especially those of the Gothic stock, had come into contact with the Romans as soldiers in the imperial service and sometimes in the court, and further, 
most of these Gothic tribes had listened to the teachers and missionaries of Christianity, and had, in a partial and imperfect way, received it as their religion. When, therefore, they founded their new kingdoms in Gaul, in Spain, in Italy, the things about them were not absolutely strange to them. Still, when the time of comparative repose succeeded the excitement of conquering and taking possession, the conquerors found themselves under altered conditions of life. They found themselves continually in the presence of three new sets of circumstances, which were from day to day impressing their minds, forcing on them new ideas, affecting their actions, favoring or interfering with their purposes, and these, whether resisted or welcomed, were insensibly subjecting them to processes of change, gradual, prolonged, and sometimes intermitting, but very deep and very eventful. These changes were the beginnings out of which, by long waiting and painful steps and dreary reactions of anarchy and darkness, the new and progressive civilization of the European nations was to spring. The first of these influences was the presence of the Christian Church. The second was the presence of Roman law and its administrative system. The third was the atmosphere of Latin language and conversation in which they lived, and its rivalries with their own Teutonic speech. 1. At the period of the Teutonic settlement, the Christian religion was rooted in the Latin world, and the Christian Church had insensibly attracted to itself the authority with which men spontaneously invest that which they reverence and trust. The moral and social power, which was slowly but surely slipping out of the hands of the empire, and even some measure of the political power which its officials were abdicating, was passing over to the chiefs of the religious society which the empire had vainly combated, the Christian bishops. Amid the ruins of the greatest pride and the greatest strength that the world had known, the church alone stood erect and strong. In days when men relied only on force and violence, yet only to discover, time after time, that force alone could not give and secure power, the church ruled by the word of persuasion, by example, by knowledge, by its higher view of life, by its obstinate hopes and visible beneficence, by its confidence in innocence, by its call to peace. The church had faith in itself and its mission where all other faith had broken down. It might be afflicted and troubled by the disasters of the time, but its work was never arrested by them nor its courage abated. It still offered shelter and relief among the confusion, even after war had broken into its sanctuaries and the sword had slaughtered its ministers. It still persisted in holding out the light from heaven when the air was filled with storm and darkness. In the Latin cities of Italy and Gaul, while public spirit and the sense of duty were failing, and the civil chiefs of society shrank from the dangerous burdens and troubles of office, the Christian bishops, chosen by their people for qualities which men most respect, were, by virtue of these qualities, ready to accept the responsibilities which others gave up, and were taking informally the first place. It added to their influence that they were permanent in their office, and some of the most remarkable of them held it for a very long period, through rapid changes in the world without. 
Avitus, Bishop of Vienne, for thirty-five years, from 490 to 525, helped to order the Burgundian kingdom and witnessed its fall. Caesarius of Arles, in his forty years' episcopate, from 501 to 542, saw the power of the West pass from the Goths to the Franks, and the Gothic kingdom built up by Theodoric in Italy, overthrown by Belisarius, and both Caesarius and Avitus exercised great influence on the new society and its new masters. Remigius, who in 496 baptized Clovis and his Franks, in his episcopate of more than seventy years, from 461 to 533, saw the last days of the Western Empire and the victorious beginnings of the Merovingian line. In times of strife, the bishops were mediators, ambassadors, peacemakers. In times of imminent danger, men looked to them to face the peril, to intercede for the doomed, to cross with no protection but their sacred character the path of the destroyer. With the terrible and inflexible barbarians, who were deaf to Roman envoys and contemptuous of Roman soldiers, with Ricimer, with Alaric, with Attila, with Geyseric, the last word, the only word listened to, was that of a fearless bishop, like Pope Leo, asking nothing for himself, but in the name of the Most High, that his people should be spared. Representatives not of religion only and the claims of God, but of moral order, of the rights of conscience and the sympathies of men, of the bonds and authority of human society, the Christian bishops were, when the barbarians became settlers in the empire, the only trusted guides of life. Besides these majestic and commanding forms which were continually meeting the newcomers in questions of peace and war, in council, in the intercourse of civil human labor, which could hope to be spared in those lands of perpetual war. In the religious teaching of the clergy, the great outlines and facts of this Christian creed were strongly and firmly drawn, and they were never obliterated, though often confused by lower and meaner admixtures. It was impossible to forget the cross of Christ. The appeal of our Father went up in numberless tongues and dialects all over the West, from the ignorant and the miserable, from the barbarian warrior and perhaps his victim. But the religious aspect of the West was to be for many centuries after the conquest a dark and deplorable one. From the moment that the barbarians became masters in the West, an immediate deterioration becomes manifest in the clergy, in their teaching, in their standard of conduct. There is a vast change from the generation of churchmen in Gaul who had felt the influence of the powerful writers and earnest teachers of the 4th and 5th century, St. Hilary, St. Jerome, St. Leo, above all, St. Augustine, and St. Augustine's strong and subtle antagonists, Faustus and Pelagius. Even from men like Prosper of Aquitaine, Avitus of Vienne, Caesarius of Arles, the descent is great to the next generation in the 6th century with their coarse and superficial religion, their readiness to allow sin to buy itself off by prodigal gifts, the connivance by the best men at imposture, its direct encouragement by the average. 
in the church in Gaul under the Franks, of which Gregory of Tours, 540 to 595, has left so curious a contemporary picture, the hold of discipline on the people is seen to be of the slightest. The irregularity of all acts among the clergy is of the greatest. And these evils increased as the bishops increased in dignity and wealth. The breadth of land held and tilled by the clergy was a benefit to the country, but not to themselves. Their secularity and widespread corruption were the heavy price at which their hold on the barbarians, the only visible hope for the ultimate improvement of society, was purchased. End of section 5